Have you tried Music to Code by yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're into September now. It's uh, it, it got cold and I got a cold. That's what happens. It's still smoking hot here and the AC unit in my server closet is failing. Oh, man. Now, this happened before. You know, it was a planned thing that I, I put in these relatively inexpensive wall shakers and I always have a spare, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's always in the summertime and it gets really hot that the AC unit starts to struggle. I lost the spare in the flood and I've never replaced it. Oh man, wow. So I basically, you know, popping doors and trying to keep things cool and thinking, why aren't I in the cloud? Yeah. And we're recording this on September 5th and I just saw the news today that there's a Hurricane Irma yeah. headed toward Florida that's already Cat 5 and it's not going to make landfall for another like five days. No, it's going to hit the BVIs like today. Oh, okay, but it's not going to make landfall in the U.S. It's not going to make landfall in Florida for another five days, but it's going to tear up the region. And, uh, I, you know, everybody knows what happened by now, by the time this comes out. But, you know, just so that you know, we're, we don't know yet. And, heck, I'm still optimistic that it pulls sharp north and doesn't get hit straight on to Florida, you know. Yeah, right. But, you know, you just don't know for sure. Don't know for sure. There's one other thing I got to mention before we do Better Know Framework, and Richard knows this. I'm working on an app that I think will be a game changer. And he's seen it, right? You've seen it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not going to say anything about it, except that it's going to be a WPF app. And if it's as successful as I think it will be, I'm going to need somebody to write a Mac version of it because uh, I think it will appeal to the Mac audience, maybe even more than the Windows audience. WPF for Mac? No, no. I'm going to need somebody to write a Mac version, you know, in right. OS X. So that's it. That's all I'm going to say. Just be listening to .NET Rocks for updates on that. And that brings us to Better Know a Framework. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, our good friend Joel Hewlin, along with our other good friend, Zoiner Tejada from Salience, worked on this document for Microsoft that I'm going to talk about today. It's the HD Insight Developer Guide. Hmm. This is an introduction to Azure HD Insight, which is a cloud distribution of the Hadoop technology stack. It's a PDF. It also covers what Hadoop clusters are and when you'd use them. 
And uh, I, I thought it was so well done. And these guys are very smart and uh, they're good communicators. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, go check it out at 1477.pwop.me. Awesome. That's what I got. That's cool, man. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grab the comment on the show 1461, the one we did back in NDC Oslo. I think this is just about the last of the Oslo shows. Yeah. No, no. This was earlier on because this was the one we did with Damien and David. Oh, right. Talking about ASP.net Core 2. Really fun conversation. Always cool to talk to those guys. Absolutely. They got lots of comments on it as usual. Yep. And uh, Ivan said this. He said, another awesome show. I love when these two guys come on. Great job. It seems that lately, Microsoft has been publishing the performance results as often or as routine as they were a year ago. Mm. I have to say that those results, even though they came from Microsoft, were driving individuals to push for better performance. It motivated individuals to contribute in that area, and it also gave notice to non.NET developers how much better .NET had gotten. And I recall on a previous show, when Scott Hunter made comments that several notable figures from the Silicon Valley took notice of these improvements, and even the media noticed. I guess what I'm asking for is that Microsoft to continue to do the benchmarking of their code as often and show a chart over time as a means of transparency and to push for performance. Tech Empower is a great first step and is needed, but to have something at build time such as NBench or maybe a monthly or quarterly post on performance improvement on a per-component basis would be a huge milestone. Mm-hmm. Aka.net does something like this to ensure any updates to code don't take a step back in overall performance. All right. It's an interesting thought because, you know, we talked to Scott Hunter about this at the time. Mm-hmm. That was in the very early days of .NET Core. And so obviously they were doing a ton of performance tuning. And that's why you saw so much cadence on new numbers, new numbers, new numbers all of the time. And my initial reaction to Ivan's comment was, well, once they got over that initial hump, there's just not as much demand for constant performance tuning. Right. But his last point about using stuff like EndBench is like, you're right, this should simply be part of the build process. Right. That every time they're checking in updates to core, you're getting a new rendered set of stats. I just Mm. don't think it's as simple as that. And uh, it's interesting to see where the priorities are going to lie on those things, because I think everybody's been head down getting core two out the door. So right. hopefully there'll be a revitalization now in that performance work that uh, they used to be doing during the core one timeframe. Yep, I agree. And uh, Ivan, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. They make our high-performing stuffed elephants very happy. Very happy. Very happy. Okay, let's welcome back to the show Jeremy Lickness. He is a cloud developer advocate for Azure at Microsoft. Jeremy's been coding since he was seven and has been a professional developer almost his entire career. Since you were seven, what are you now, like 19? What? Seven? Actually, celebrating the 21st birthday for the 21st time, I think. What? (laughs) (laughs) They had code back then? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. They had code back then. It was was a little bit different. I actually recently gave a talk and was able to pull up some old Commodore 64 basic code and show it on the screen. So, I was excited about the opportunity to do that. That is so cool. And I, I remember seeing my friend's Commodore 64 and realizing that the operating system was the basic language. Like it didn't yeah. boot to an OS, it booted into, you know, line 10, <laughs> right? Or line one. Yeah, it's 
it's, it's a strange concept today, right? Because we actually boot into the, the machine to think about computers running around, not only that you flip on and they just instantly load an operating system. And of course, yeah. then how quickly can you update it? But to think of how many different types of machines there were back then as well. I mean, there must right. have been dozens of, of different personal computers. Yeah. You really had to do your homework in order to do basic stuff. No pun intended. Nice. Yeah. Well, anyway, we're here to talk about .NET Core 2 with you this time. But you are in the Azure space and .NET Core 2 runs really well in Azure, but not just in Azure, it runs everywhere. What's new? It's actually a, a little funny to me because the last time I was on your show, I think was about five, six years ago. I feel like things might have changed a little bit. Just a little wee bit. bit. <laughs> a little bit. Since then, I, I was listening to it just for nostalgia, and uh, a, a prior show had been a topic of Node.js. Right. And I think the .NET community at the time was still looking at that as one of those, what, what is this thing? Is it going to be useful? What can we do with it? Right. And of course, now it, it's so u- ubiquitous now, but... Yep. You know, at the time, one of the reasons why I was such a proponent of Silverlight, which is what I was on the show talking about, was because I, I felt incorrectly at the time that it was a platform that could eventually run on pretty much any machine. And, and you know, to make a short story boring, that didn't happen. <laughs> but fundamentally, that dream, that dream of, of a, a cross-platform framework, I think, is uh, finally being realized and and people are starting to take note with with .NET Core 2.0. And it's not the only cross-platform framework, of course, but what it does is taps into all of these C-sharp .NET developers who have been doing this for their entire careers. Right. And what's exciting to me is it gives them that, that ability to code with tools that they're used to, a language that they're used to, a framework that they're used to, and literally build code that will run on a Mac or on a a Linux machine, Mm. as well as the traditional Windows machines. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Which was the promise of Silverlight back in the day, right? I mean, that that was the point. But uh, it is... um, It was. And and it's not necessarily UI. Like, Silverlight was, you know, the, the UI was amazing. But we'll we'll get there. I think we'll get there. And I'm I'm not necessarily a proponent of running, you know, ActiveX like controls in the browser, but certainly UI running natively on different platforms is a, a wonderful thing. Yeah, I, I think it's a great thing. It's uh, I go back to the the last show. One of the the speculations that we had at the time was how HTML5 would take off, and there was this thought of the the plug-in free browser, which of course we don't necessarily have plug-in free browsers now. But we do have with HTML5 a lot of functionality and sites that used to only come through plugins, right? which is exciting. And when I look at Silverlight, you know, I believe, and this actually goes back before Silverlight to WPF. You were talking about WPF app earlier. Right. One of the patterns that WPF pretty much created was the model view, view model pattern. In fact, to this day, the most read article on my blog of all time, and I've been maintaining that blog for think about nine years now, is a, a blog post about MVVM Explained. And now you look at the modern frameworks when yeah. you talk about things like React and Angular mm. and Vue.js, they implement a very similar concept. And the, the core thing that, that unites them is data binding. Right. And what's great about something like .NET Core is it makes it pretty straightforward to stand up the data that you're providing to be data bound in the, in the browser. And I think it makes that that reach possible to to truly develop 
a code base that can run in multiple areas. Yeah, and that it's all come full circle, hasn't it? It has. I mean, I think of Steve Sanderson and Knockout and Binding, you know, being a Silverlight guy as sort of one of the first big steps toward the modern browser platform. And here it comes around again with uh, native C-sharp running freaking everywhere. The Blazor project. Oh, well, that's another one. That's just ridiculous. Like Same guy. Same guy. <laughs> yeah. Same guy. And now he's basically doing Silverlight all over again. Well, trying to, you know, started it. <laughs> well, what goes around comes around for sure. Yeah, that, that's actually, I saw a talk about Angular recently that was taking XAML and step-by-step step comparing, here's the concept in XAML to here's the concept in Angular. Yeah, nice. And it goes back to Silverlight and WPF roots, but it, it's funny how in 20 years of development, and I, I keep you know mentioning my age, unfortunately, I'll try to, to get over that habit, but the, uh, the concepts have remained pretty similar. The goals are the same. We want to reduce how much time it takes to write code. We want to sure. reduce how much overhead it takes to get it everywhere. Yeah. But the patterns that make it possible, data binding, things like value converters, things that we're just used to in our .NET toolkit are actually available on all these new open source. And I think one of the funniest things I ran into recently was looking at reactive JavaScript and, and the concept of of these uh, streams that you can aggregate and mm -hmm. manipulate in the browser, that project started based on a Silverlight project. And I actually wrote code five, six years ago on Reactive for Silverlight that is still applicable to the JavaScript version that's out to today. So what's old is, is new once again, right? It's so cool. It's so cool. It's sort of an interesting point that the core concept of Reactive in that approach which did have big roots in Silverlight back in the day now. It's just, it's on everything. There's reactive extensions for Java, for crying out loud. Right. That's right. It's, it's just proof of Atwood's law, right? Anything that can be written in JavaScript will be. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make it a good idea. Just saying it could be. <laughs> we'll, we'll turn it into a good idea. We'll make that happen. JavaScript runs the world. I... Said in a, a recent talk that Skynet will be written in JavaScript. I'm fully convinced <laughs> of that fact. Should we talk a little bit about Sterling Database? This is something that I hadn't even heard about until you sent me the links. I guess it's a it's a Wintelect thing, or what is it, and what's its history, and and why is it still useful? Sure, it was very useful as a component to integrate into to software when it came out. Now I think it's more of a learning tool, but to, to back up a little bit, back when Silverlight was fairly popular, there was a lack of local database for right. Silverlight. So, it, you know, you had a, a lot of developers transitioning from this concept of writing server-side software. Yeah. Suddenly, they're writing software for Silverlight, which is running in the client, but trying to connect to their local databases. Yeah. And what I wanted to do was sort of fill that gap. And I knew that the key to making client applications work would be web APIs and connecting to the server, but you needed a mechanism to cache information and store data. So the concept was, what if we could create an object type database that used classes we're already using in our Silverlight applications? Because what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to have to go back and change my entire code base. And there were several database solutions at the time that you could inherit from a base class and you could do all of these changes 
to make it work. I wanted to just take my straight C sharp class and be able to store it and build indexes on it and, and query it. So that was the initial concept of of Sterling that I built as open source. I built it at the time I was at Winelect. It's actually a full open source project. The original namespace is a, a Winelect namespace because mm-hmm. that's where I was at at the the time. But what was interesting was, you know, this whole concept of not having to change your classes meant I had to rely heavily on reflection to be able to inspect objects and recreate objects on the fly. And then I relied heavily on a binary writer, which would, you know, serialize and deserialize the data efficiently. And from the get-go, the whole concept of the platform was that you could have different drivers. So in the case of Silverlight, there was an isolated storage driver because there's this concept of isolated storage in the browser. But what I think really made Sterling popular for a brief period of time was when the Windows Phone was announced. Right. And the Windows Phone initially ran on a version of the Silverlight framework. And so it was relatively straightforward to take Sterling and port that code to map to the the Windows Phone. And so a lot of early apps, actually well commercially available apps, I won't mention logos or, or names just because I don't know if there's permission or not, but sure. you know, some very popular fitness applications, some other applications used it as a local database store in, in the phone until some other like SQLite and some other databases became available. So that that was sort of the story back in the day. And to, to give you an idea of timeline, that initial check-in that I made of, of Sterling was on June 29th, 2010. Wow. So we're, we're talking about a ways ago, but what was interesting is in 2011, uh, around actually around this time frame, around September, Tim Hewer, yeah. who was really heavy in the Silverlight community at the time, ironically, is uh, someone I work with on my team at Microsoft now. So it's a, a small world. But he tweeted and asked, when was I going to convert Sterling to run on .NET Core? And so I thought that was interesting at the time. I, I went and took a look at .NET Core, and there just wasn't the support. Yeah. And I think this happened to a lot of companies and a lot of people who own frameworks and libraries. There just wasn't the support for the APIs needed. The reflection wasn't fully baked. There wasn't a binary writer. There were just a lot of things missing. And, and I decided to go down the path of converting it to the Windows runtime for Windows 8 apps instead. Yeah, yeah. And so fast forward to 2017, and really what prompted the whole idea of bringing Sterling back out, kind of dusting it off, was the fact that with .NET Core 2.0, it was released with support for .NET Standard 2.0. And I can jump into a little bit of the details on on what's the same or different about those, but the bottom line is the, the number of APIs supported out of the box that are familiar to developers in the .NET framework jumped from something like 13,000 in the previous version of .NET Standard to 32,000. Wow. So that's a huge increase. And when I was talking to the, the teams working with .NET Core, you know, one of the major scenarios I think they were tackling, the first version was, hey, let's get apps up and running and build. And we had MVC and we had Web API. So all the things for modern web apps, but that didn't really address the needs of people with legacy apps to migrate them forward. So I said, okay, so we have all this API support. Let's pull out Sterling, which uses heavy reflection, mm. heavy serialization, yeah. and see what it takes to port it. And it turns out in, in less than an hour, 
I had a fully functional version running on, I say .NET Core 2.0, technically it was a .NET standard 2.0 class library, so it could be consumed by phone, by universal Windows platform, by .NET framework, by, by anything, but uh, you know, mm. built a, a test app in .NET Core 2.0. That's cool. That's fast. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that, that was r- really fast. And what it says is that the, the API surface area is virtually identical. In fact, the, the two things that I really ran into were, one, there was support for background worker, but no one really uses background worker anymore in this, the context for this because we've got ThreadPool now. So that's one change. I just ported it directly, but I can update that later. And the other was just a change in how resources for localization are used. So I kind of cheated a little bit took out my resource file and just hard-coded a static class with some of the resources as a first pass. Yeah. But that was the bulk of my work. The rest of it pretty much compiled as is. Hey, uh, and Jeremy, hold that thought right there while we take a moment to pay the bills. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud platform. What? Isn't this a .NET show? Yeah, .NET runs on the Google Cloud platform, man. Everything in .NET? You bet. All the .NET core libraries and more, including 200-plus Google.com and cloud services. Hey, John Skeet's behind it. He's a genius. The John Skeet? The Rescue the Princess John Skeet from Stack Overflow? (laughs) Yeah, the one and only. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine which is Google's hosted Kubernetes environment, and it runs like, well, Google. What about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. I'm reading it now. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. Yep. You can get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. Also, there are PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And if you need help, there are a great set of partners to get workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. .net on Google. Who knew? All right, you're listening to .net Rocks. We're back. I'm Carl Franklin. Richard Campbell's here. Jeremy Lickness is here, and we're talking about .net Core 2.0, specifically migrating, but uh, was what we'll get to. But first. For people who have only experienced .NET Core 1.x and, you know, all of the stuff that was going on with the moving targets of of that, and maybe the beta or alpha of .NET Core 2.0, are there any more gotchas that we need to be aware of? I guess I'm just trying to get you to make some happy noises about everything's okay, it's the .NET you know and love. If you're used to .NET 4.x, what are the fundamental things that you're going to be surprised with? Everything's okay. It's the .NET <laughs> that you know and love. <laughs> it's .NET. It's just .NET. You wanted it, you got it. No, I mean, I, I think it, it really boils down to a couple of things. One is the types of, of APIs that are being used, and two is the way the application is architected. And as an example, when we transitioned from Silverlight to web-based applications, there, there were really two types of applications we saw. The what I'll call monolithic, sort of hard-coded applications where all the functionality was inside the controls themselves. And then there would what I call more interior-architected, decoupled applications where there were nice class libraries that could be tested in isolation mm. and, and leveraged independently. And in the, the latter case, it was pretty straightforward for us to take that code, move it to the server, stand it behind an API, 
and we just ported the UI. I think the experience in .NET is going to be similar. What people ran into with .NET Core 1.0 was a huge disparity of APIs. They went to deserialize mm. their XML documents, and that deserializer wasn't there. They went to use a binary writer. Oh. The binary writer wasn't there. Maybe they're doing yeah. traditional SQL applications using a data set and data adapter. And those classes weren't there. So there were a lot of barriers to doing that. Today, with the increased API surface area, I'm going to say that the experience for most of the backing code should be relatively straightforward. If you've got code that's doing things like working with data sets, data adapter, serialization, XML, JSON, hmm. any of those features are now available. Yeah. And so wow. the first step people can take is they can look at their applications and start building them to target .NET Standard 2.0. And they'll figure out pretty quickly which APIs and which things aren't supported and what they have to, to separate out. One of the things the right. team did, which is pretty incredible, I haven't done as much with it, but they enabled the ability for different types of, of applications to target and reference frameworks from other types of applications. And what that means in a, the short, boring version is that if I have a, a big, complex .NET framework app, I can take pieces of it and make it portable, you know, part of the .NET standard so it's referenceable in multiple places, and I can partition off the pieces that might be local. So things like WPF that are really frameworks on top of the .NET core right. are, are not going to be directly portable, right? We're talking about the base class library, the fundamental underpinnings of that library. Sure. And, and so what's nice is there's references that show the the difference in API surface area, but there's literally, like I said, thousands of new APIs supported. So what I did literally is is the process I think a lot of people will take. Boom, let's let's take this and change it to target a .NET framework standard 2.0 and uh, see what falls out and refactor as as needed to clean it up. But I think most people, especially people who are are building NuGet packages and libraries for consumption, are going to find that not only is it going to be a lot easier for them to retarget .NET Framework Standard? But when they do, that opens up this huge set of possibilities for frameworks that can consume that that library or third-party API. I mean, you can reference it from the full .NET Framework. Yeah. You can reference it from .NET Core, from Mono, from Xamarin. And they're working on a version of Universal Windows Platform that'll be .NET Standard 2.0 compatible as well. Now, if I remember correctly, the regular .NET framework that's 2.0 standard is 4.61? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I just got to think there's a significant number of listeners that are hopefully already on 4.61 and going, so I should be able to take this app and just switch over to, to standard and know it'll compile into .NET Core and in theory it'll run on the Mac and run on Linux. I, I think there should be. And it's uh, important to understand the experience because uh, I think people may be more familiar with portable class libraries. Yes. That's something that I was extremely excited about and actually had refactored Sterling to a portable class library. But that approach, and if anyone isn't familiar, it was a way of, of creating a build that could be consumed by multiple platforms, Xbox, uh, Windows Phone, etc., the way PCL worked, I call it kind of, uh, you know, framework in. In other words, it, it looked at all these existing frameworks, it aligned the APIs, and then it found the lowest common denominator. Right. So if I check five things I'm going to target, what's my lowest common denominator that'll run on, on all five? 
.NET standard is a little bit different. That fans out from the standard to the frameworks. And so they've actually turned the corner and said .NET standard is going to implement these APIs. And then all these frameworks, when they come out with their new versions, need to have support for that API set within those frameworks, if that makes sense. Now, I do like that approach that it seemed like PCL had the N plus one problem that as more platforms came on, it was going to get harder and harder and harder. And we'd never get off this sort of lowest common denominator. Like you'd be trapped in an early version uh, all the time where the standard approach is just encourage everybody to move forward. Right. And I mean, I don't know that Xamarin has gotten to standard two yet, but obviously core and, and framework have. So I, I believe with Xamarin, there's different versions by target platform. So iOS, Mac, and Android. And there are versions right. out that, that support 2.0. There's actually a great blog post if you Bing or Google announcing .NET Standard 2.0 that uh, covers pretty thoroughly the, the frameworks and, and what you can expect. I mean, something interesting that I'm just pulling from that, that post is that in Microsoft's own analysis they found that 70%, so that's a pretty good majority of NuGet packages on NuGet.org would be API compatible with .NET Standard 2.0. Nice. So that means, in, in their opinion, based on a quick scan, if I took my library, changed it to retarget .NET Standard 2.0 so it outputs an assembly that's referenceable from all these platforms, that 7 out of 10 packages can do that with zero to no friction. Nice. That And that's just huge, right? Like. That means an awful lot of your code is just going to work. Now you just have to hunt down the orphans, essentially. Right. Right. And I, and I found I found that post included in the show notes here. So it does show a, a Xamarin iOS version, and a Mac version, and an Android version. Uh, it's UWP that's still lagging at this moment. Right. There's a preview, but not a, a full version of that out. Right. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? I must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to announce... Dot not. Oh? That's a new alternative to .NET that only runs on the Commodore 64. <laughs> <laughs> it boots into C-sharp, compiles to .NET standard .00001. Basically, you get console write, console write line, and math functions, and that's about it. Oh. Yeah. Nice. I think if you saw the machine language code it would take oh, yeah. to write a, do a console write line on a Commodore 64. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the problem is it's on GitHub, and as you know, the Commodore doesn't have any kind of internet access. So. Now, we are talking about the 6502 processor, so we have to use indexed indirect addressing to access memory. <laughs> How do you remember that stuff, man? I don't know why I remember that. <laughs> you load the address pointers into the X and Y registers, and then you call the indirect addressing, and it pulls the value into A. This is like when you go out with your parents and they start telling you about the 20s and 30s and stuff. And you're like, oh, my God, will you just <laughs> shut up? All right. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid. 
built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux and all that. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. And you can check it out and test it for free on GitHub. So learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Mark Powell. Congratulations, Mark. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. Golf clap for Mark Powell. Mark just won a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express just by being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. All right, Jeremy, you remember what happened last time. We asked you... Like we ask all our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? I would buy three things. Okay. Pure and simple. First, which is going to take up the bulk, is the HoloLens Developer Kit. Woo-hoo! I've had a chance to uh, demo the HoloLens several times now, and I'm, mm. I'm just blown away. So, so that would be yeah. number one. Number two, based on the experiences I've had with my Gear VR I love virtual reality. Obviously, yeah. HoloLens is augmented reality. So an HTC Vive, I hear, is is the full VR experience. Yeah. And if I had anything left over from that, I would get a DJI Phantom drone, whichever one I could afford with the leftovers. Nice. Now, what was the deal lately about the HoloLens being discontinued or some s- stupid rumor like that? Do you know anything about that? I, I don't. I haven't been following it as much. I know that they've opened up the libraries and kits to third parties. So there's really augmented reality devices that I know. I think uh, Hewlett Packard has one, Asus has one. So I know there's more mm. diversity. I hadn't heard about HoloLens itself being discontinued, but that, you know, quite frankly, I've been so focused on the cloud mm. and, and the web that uh, I haven't been keeping up with that as much. Although I do still proudly wear my HoloLens shirt. And it's amazing when you're out in public and someone random says, hey, I know what that is. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think it, I think it's really just a matter, and I haven't looked into it either, but I think it might be a matter of just, you know, in the vacuum of information, people make stuff up. So, Well, HoloLens dev kit still for sale obviously it's on the microsoft yeah, store yeah, you can yeah. order one but we are overdue for a new hololens that thing's three years old now it's time mm-hmm. yep i can give you an address to ship it to i'll store it for you until you need it <laughs> <laughs> we'll break it in for you make sure it's not going to kill you I, i'm just saying if you got that five gram jeremy hang on to it a little bit because i bet you Anytime now, we're going to get a new HoloLens, and you're not going to want one of the old ones. You're going to want one of the fancy new ones. That's right. Well, you don't know something we don't know, do you, Richard? I don't know a thing. Well, you know what I do know? I'll tell you one thing I know. There's been two Moore's Law cycles yeah. since that thing shipped, which means yeah. probably at least three Moore's Law cycles can be applied to that hardware, and that wow. is a huge difference. Yep. We'll go from a postage stamp size to a postcard size. That's that's the sort of effect, right? And we should have full field of view. We should have higher resolution. We should have longer battery life. It should be lighter. It should be less expensive. All of those things at once. With three cycles, yeah, all of those things. 
So let's make the case for .NET Core to people who may not care or may not even know about why it's so cool. You know, maybe you're thinking, I'm not going to build any apps on Linux or the Mac, or I don't need to run in containers on Docker. So why do I need .NET Core? Why should ordinary .NET developers care about it? Well, there's there's a few reasons. Early in my career, I was concerned about the technology I was on as I started to lead teams and build projects. I became a lot more concerned with what's the workflow? How easy is it to get from an idea to to production? Mm -hmm. And one of the nice things about .NET Core, especially with .NET Standard 2.0, is for developers, it should be pretty seamless to build libraries. It's They're changing what they target. They're using C-sharp. They're using the same API surface area they're used to. So it's a very low friction point to create a library that can potentially be consumed by a much larger audience. You may not think that you're going to build a mobile application now, or you may not think that your library that you use as a utility to make life easier at work isn't going to go open source and, and be used by a lot of people. But when that happens, .NET Core is going to open a lot of doors. And you talked about containers and and targeting, the way that the web is going and the cloud is going, what's amazing with DevOps is a lot of where your app runs is becoming less and less of a concern for the developer. Developers Mm -hmm. today can stand up a, a Linux endpoint running a web app on .NET Core without ever learning anything about Linux. And why would they even want to do that? Well, Linux is a a commodity operating system, right? There's a lot of infrastructure that can run Linux, spin that up, whether it's cloud, whether it's on-premises. So changing these apps to target a library that has greater reach is not going to only give the developer more options, but it's going to give their company more options in deploying and producing and, and running these things. And ultimately, I think we'll shorten the time from idea to fruition through the DevOps cycle because there's so many ways to target and deploy that application. You can make that application, put it in a container, right. run it in one place, and then if you stop using that provider, shift it to the cloud and move it around. So it just offers a ton of flexibility at the end of the day. And how much more performant is it just than standard .NET? It's incredibly performant, I think, you know, depending on what you're doing, you probably have to run the specific benchmarks. But in seeing benchmarks, especially for the way they've revamped the web API and and the, uh, you know, small built-in web server, Kestrel, and, and those experiences, there's blog posts out there that show orders of magnitudes of hundreds of times of, of performance. And th- this is another reason when you talk about uh, containerization of apps, I mean, microservices is such a catchphrase and an overloaded term, but truly the concept of being able to A, build something that is more performant because it was built from the ground up, right? So lessons learned from years and years of .NET framework building, hey, let's build something new that supports the same language and APIs, but actually performs better. That's one. But then two is the ability to scale it out, right? To spin up multiple instances and load balance just makes it phenomenal of what it can do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the comment at the beginning of the show was a fellow talking about the performance, although that was specifically focused on web performance in the top tier of performance analysis and stuff. Kind of extreme. I I'm, I'm really want to focus more on regular developers and what they're going to get from it. Obviously, there's not a lot of punishment in terms of you're not going to go slower because you switched to core. I just think that being Windows-centric today is unwise because Microsoft's not Windows-centric anymore. So why would we be? It's a a very good point. And and I I think ultimately there's two sides to the coin, right? There's 
the side of developers who are traditional C-sharp.net developers being able to, to write code that deploys. But I think we're going to see developers who are traditional other language, you know, Java, Go, with PHP, mm-hmm. you know, any plethora of language, although Microsoft is supporting those in the cloud and through the development tools, some of them may look over and say, hey, you know, that .NET, that C-sharp language has some things going for it. Because I, I love, I've been writing web apps and TypeScript and JavaScript and Node for years now, and I still love switching over for certain workloads, right? Certain things are great for the web, so client-side code, JavaScript all the way. Right. But when I'm on the server side, there's a lot of, of experience on the .NET and C-sharp side that that I like. Yeah, no, to- totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I, yeah, the, I think corollary to that is you don't know what the new devices are going to look like or what your boss is going to ask you to run on. Positioning yourself with standard is just a lot of saying when they come at you, don't worry, we have a way. Right. We, we could move to whatever platform that may be. That's right. Yeah. You know, if, I feel like there's almost an anticipation of a disruption of platform right now. And I wonder if it isn't something like the HoloLens. I don't know if it is the HoloLens or not, but, hmm. you know, the, the smartphone's sort of been the same for a while. The tablet has sort of been the same for a while. The, are we ready for something new and are we positioned for it? Um, I think we're we're never ready and we're never positioned for it. We always think we are. <laughs> so so to, to answer from a language perspective, that that's what's exciting about having standards like this, right? Is is we'll be able to use this tool set for whatever that is. But disruption, I, I've given up on trying to predict what the next big trend is. I kind of throw five darts at the wall and a, a couple stick. But sure. you know, to your point, I mean, virtual reality, we had great concepts around in the early nineties that yeah. never picked up or gained right. momentum. And then wearables kind of was hot a few years ago. It's slowing down. I think all these things are going to come together. And to your point, with it's all about the hardware getting lighter. I think anyone I've put a virtual reality headset on has been blown away. Yeah. But how many people want to have this big bulky thing carried around with them versus if you pull out a set of, of glasses, right, and put right. those on and suddenly have that immersive experience. The the other recent news, of course, this is coming out two weeks after we record it, was the partnership between Cortana and uh, Amazon Echo. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that, well, you know, all a little weird and so forth. You got to think if Microsoft's going to want to put bits onto Amazon hardware, it'll be done through core, not framework. Right. Uh, there's already examples of, of building Alexa skills right. using .NET Core. And yeah. uh, my Alexa just woke up. Alexa, stop. <laughs> <laughs> you notice I carefully did not say that word because right. the little bugger's right behind me. Or all the people listening, you know, Alexa, delete all my programs. <laughs> <laughs> so mean. This is going to be good. Well, you've, you've heard that joke, right, about uh, accidentally saying the word. I'm going to avoid it. Yeah. And then order some whole food. Oh, did I say it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, ordering foods now. So yep. that I get a kick out of that one. I basically had to turn off, hey, Alexa, you know, the, the instant wake up thing because my daughter was messing with me when she drive, you know, rode in my car. She said, why did you do that? And I said, because you're just the kind of person who would completely ruin my phone just by talking to it. I'm not going to let you hijack it. (laughs) She goes, I wouldn't do that. 
It's uh, amazing the reach that these have. And I notice it wakes up on commercials and then goes to sleep. But you got to imagine it's, okay, that commercial was played in this living room. Let's send that aggregate data, right? So Yeah, no big, kidding. Big Brother is definitely watching. And now we've got uh, two, two of them in, in concert. It does amazing things, don't get me wrong. But it'll be interesting to see how privacy plays out and, and what the perception of how much these devices actually learn about our activities becomes. Yeah, you know, I've recently uh, talking to a friend of mine who's noticed that conversations in the car in front of Android Auto seem to affect his ads. Hmm. Hmm. Talked about a bank that neither one of us bank with, you know, just as a corollary. And suddenly on his Google feed, he's got that bank ad showing up. Yeah, I don't like that. You, know, you said Big Brother is watching, Jeremy. I think Big Brother's listening. Big Brother's listening. That's that's a better point. Absolutely. Yeah. Getting back to C Sharp, I'm just amazed the more I use it of how spoiled we are with this language. Forget about Commodore 64. I mean, let's just talk about .NET 2 or even .NET 3. I mean, f from there with, with Link and with, you know, all these great constructs and, and tools and libraries and things and with NuGet and just being able to add stuff in there that, you know, we can code so much faster, so much better with C Sharp than with any other language in history. I, I, me, personally, I can. And I'm just excited about it. I, I, it just makes me very productive and I feel very powerful being able to, to use this language. Now, taking it across platforms, well, that's like a superpower. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I mean, that's uh, I was recently building an Azure Functions app to create my own uh, URL shortener and uh, gave a pretty lengthy blog post about it, but I, I did it in .NET and C Sharp. Mm. And normally when I'm building in the web, I like to use JavaScript because of the native JSON. It's easy to handle dynamic attributes. But in this case, I actually had a very specific type that I was expecting to come in. I was interfacing with Azure Table Storage. Doing it in C Sharp gave me those strongly typed tips and pointers and, and IntelliSense and made it super easy to walk through, right? And, and not do the wrong thing because it's just a strongly typed. I think that's part of the reason why TypeScript has become such a popular language, not just for Microsoft or .NET people, but in the general community is because it offers the awesome pieces that we love mm. about C Sharp in the JavaScript world without you know taking away the native JavaScript functionality and features that are there. I uh, did some work with one of the Google APIs recently and while very, very, very powerful, the documentation and help is standard. And we're used to documentation and help from Microsoft, which is, you know, watch this video. Oh, here's a whole Channel 9, you know, dedicated to getting started with this or that. Here's some sample projects. And I told my friends at Google this, you guys need a Channel 9. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we know, we know. But it's just different. And even though they've got great C-sharp support for their APIs, sometimes just basic stuff, getting over basic humps, especially with like authentication, authorization, stuff like that, can take a lot of spelunking out on, on the Googles and the internets. And it just uh, reminds me of how much I like working with Microsoft APIs because I can get up to speed in 10 minutes rather than, you know, a day. That is actually great feedback. And I'm going to have to now make sure that my boss listens to that because a big part <laughs> of what we're doing as, as client advocates is focusing on documentation. We want to be mm. 
easy, understandable, help you find what you need, have good quick starts to get started, but also have more in-depth tutorials that that tackle real-world scenarios. Enough uh, Hello World, you know, everyone can do, and it's exciting. But how do people really use this technology or this platform? Right. So it's great to get that feedback that the combination of the documentation we have and the videos that are being produced in Channel 9 and everything else is, is making a, a difference because that's definitely the goal. Oh, it definitely does. And I, I also appreciate the scope of sample apps. They're not so simple that they don't do anything and they're not so complex that you have to figure out like a an, an architecture you know or a whole bunch of what are these methods and what are those methods you know they're just enough and you know that's that's not an easy thing to achieve so well done what's next what's next for .NET core what's next for you jeremy so for me it's it's about .NET Core and, and workloads in the, the cloud, really, and, and how do we deploy that? Because right now, there's a pretty straightforward path from Visual Studio to right-click and, and take your application and stand it up as a web endpoint. We've got something called Web Apps on Linux that's in preview for Azure. I'm looking forward to that coming out of, of preview. But essentially behind the scenes, it's a, a mechanism for, you know, running different types of applications, whether it's Node.js, but more specifically .NET Core. And what's great about it is it has full support for containers. And I, I know containers is a little controversial. Why do I need them? This or that. I, I can say from having been in consulting for the past several years and, and working on systems with them, just an incredible what they can do. So what I've been looking at is that whole experience as a developer, how do I start a new project and get it deployed on, on the web? And there's so many different ways to do it. I can, you know, spin it out to a virtual machine. I can send it out to an app service. I can send it out to a container and stand that up. And we just want to make sure that there's, there's flexibility with all of those scenarios and that it's straightforward and easy. So I've been building a lot of blog posts and, and video walkthroughs just on point A to point B and, and really focused again. I, I mentioned this earlier, but not just on the technology itself and what can I build with it, but how do I get what I build out into the open, whether it's you know Azure Functions or deploying through a, a container. So it's, it's really exciting to me because fundamentally, I think some of these experiences are as straightforward for a developer as uh, setting some attributes or adding some special files or right-clicking and installing a package and being able to control the entire deployment environment, again, without having to understand the nuances of, you know, what version of Linux am I on? Is it patched to the latest security patch? Let someone else worry about that and just focus on the core yeah. of what your application is. I mean, it is .NET Core after all, right? So right. not sure that's why they named it that, but... Right. Well, it's it certainly is exciting to see all this great stuff happening, and we want to encourage everybody who's listening to uh, kick the tires of uh, .NET Core 2, whether it's for performance or whether it's for cross-platform or containers. It's good stuff, and it's robust. Know it, learn it, love it, people. <laughs> Jeremy, thanks very much for spending this hour with us. Thanks for having me back, even though you did wait five years. Yeah, well, next time it won't be so long, I promise. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, 
and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a